Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I'm the host of the Sendcast. We started the Sendcast a few years ago as a way to help improve knowledge around SEND. You can spend hours trawling the internet or reading books, but don't have the time. The Sendcast was created to help make schools more inclusive, to help teachers, to support all pupils and to help support staff be more aware. It is important to get the same consistent message to schools and parents. And the Sendcast is a great way to achieve this. My guest this week is Sarah Jane Critchley. Sarah Jane is a regular on this podcast, as well as featuring on the podcast, she is an author, speaker, consultant, and coach. And on this week's podcast, we're discussing pupil voice and choice making, building skills to create capable, resilient adults. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B Squared. Over the last 25 years, B-Squared have supported schools to support students with SEND. Over the last few years, we have diversified. For years, we've focused on assessment, and this will always be our main focus. But we have seen a lack of high-quality, easy-to-access training and CPD for schools around SEND. Our online CPD offering, Training for Education, started two years ago with a virtual SEND conference, but now includes a range of training courses as well as our conferences. You can find out more about our conferences and training courses by going to the Training for Education website, which is www.trainingforeducation.com. At the end of the episode, I'll be sharing exclusive Sendcast discount codes that keep listening. Now let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing choice making and pupil voice. Discussing with this, me today is Sarah Jane Critchley from Different Joy Partnership. Sarah Jane was previously the program manager of the Autism Education Trust, where she commissioned the AET School Standards and Competency Frameworks, and she is also a parent of two children who are autistic. Welcome to the show, Sarah Jane. Thank you, Dale. So, lots of schools do pupil voice, but sometimes it is just there. And it is just part of the process. The school don't really believe it and they haven't really bought into it. But pupil voice is extremely important, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. So let's dive in to what it actually is and why it matters. So one of the first things I want to talk to you about is around the concept of agency. And pupil voice matters because it gives an individual chance to have agency over their own life. Now, this matters to pupils because it will help them to choose more effectively in adulthood. And we know that having some control helps people to feel safe and secure and able to do that wonderful thing that we all like to do, which is called accessing learning. So I'm guessing, Dale, that you actually quite like learning when you're in a safe place and comfortable and can feel relaxed and can choose what it is you want to learn? Yes. Funny when that. I'm interested, when I'm comfortable, I, I love learning. I do. Absolutely. But I, but I can also be taken out of that learning zone quite easily. Mm. And it's not, not, I don't mean distracted, but if it's uh, not going at the speed I need it to, mm. if it's not that interesting, you're going to lose me quite quickly. So it's one of the things that we know about people, that we need to have some control in order to feel safe or at yep. whatever limited 
capacity at whatever limited level. And I was really struck by this for the first time when I went to a session that was done by Jamie and Lyon. Now, Jamie is an autistic adult who is an amazing programmer, the BBC. In fact, he's written the code that provides most of the BBC services. And Jamie does not live independently. He lives with a lot of support. Now, Jamie is clearly able to work. He works brilliantly. He functions at a very competent level, holds down an amazing job and does really, really well. But he needs significant support in order to do so. What's really interesting about him is that he wrote really powerfully on Twitter and in a presentation that I saw about the difference between independence and having agency. So he doesn't live a completely independent life. He doesn't live on his own without any support. And that's what a lot of people think independence is. But actually, what he's saying is that he has agency in order to choose what he wants for his life and to be able to put in place the things that he needs to enable those to happen. And it's taken a long time and a lot of process in order to be able to put together the package of things that he personally needs for him to be able to function. So you talk about that agency. And when I sit there and go, I, I, I googled, I googled agency. Yeah. And there is obviously a business or organization providing a particular service. Yeah, not that. Agency. <laughs> I quite quickly got there. It wasn't that one. Nope. It was action or intervention producing a particular effect. Yes. And that is the definition. So this was had canals carved by the agency of running water. Yes, exactly that idea. So I Googled it. I went, I, I, again, I'm at a point I'm going, I'm not going to pretend I know. I'm going to go find out. I'm going to be a big boy and admit I didn't know what it was. Well done. Now, that's a really good growth strategy. Well done, Dale, for investigating and trying and experimenting and being willing like to get it wrong. Didn't like the way you said trying then. Didn't like the way you said trying then. That's a negative. No, no, no. We like trying. <laughs> trying doesn't automatically indicate that you're going to fail. You have to be willing to try to be able to succeed. So what we're Definitely. talking about in terms of agency is the ability to affect what happens. Yes. So a sense of some control, yes. a sense of I can shape my future, I can have an impact on my life and my future. Absolutely. And this does come with some caveats, because obviously, as humans operating in a social society, we don't get to choose everything around us, and we have to balance our needs with the needs of other individuals that we live with, that we work with, that we're surrounded by. So there is a balancing act to be had, and that is part of the important conversation that we need to have when we're talking about agency. It doesn't apply in occasions where you may hurt someone else. And it doesn't apply where you're wanting to do something that's against the law. Yes. Okay. So this isn't, oh, we must let a, a child do everything they ever want to do, even if it hurts someone. No, we mustn't do that. That's really not what it's about. But what it is about is not saying you don't have the right to say what things are important to you and we don't care if they are important to you anyway, because we're going to ignore them because we actually want something else. So those are kind of the two diametrically opposed positions. And we're actually going for something, unsurprisingly, as In a happy middle. medium. <laughs> okay. 
because that's the thing. I suppose again, what we're what we're talking about with pupil voice is your without pupil voice, you're kind of assuming that every person, every child, every adult wants the same thing and should end up in the same thing with two point four children type <laughs> world. <laughs> yeah. You know that there's no problem. But it was that thing, yeah. We all end up in the same box. We all want this. Yeah. So well, I want this. So as a child, you must want this. Or oh, you're an autistic person, you must be on this pathway. So you're gonna end up here. So that's what we're gonna ask you what you want. We've decided for you based on some other people who you've never met, no interest in. That's what we're trying to get away from. Yeah. Is rather than us saying what's right for you. Excuse me, Sarah Jane, what is right for you? What drink do you want? It's like me going. I reckon Sarah Jane's going to be a gin and tonic lady because of the, she likes that book. Therefore, she must drink gin and tonic. And you may be you correct in that, actually. I do drink gin and tonic, but I don't always drink gin and tonic. And sometimes I prefer red wine and sometimes I don't drink at all. So you would be correct in asking the question. If you approach me this week at the beginning of the, the year when I'm trying to do a dry January, I wouldn't drink at all. No, and that's the thing. It's that's the that's kind of what people voice is, isn't yeah. it? It is going. I'm trying to shape your life for you. You should be logically as any part of this. Now, what often happens, I suppose, is well, they're a child. They don't possibly know. They're too young to know. They don't know what they don't know. I'm the best person to decide for them. That's generally what happens. I would say. But yet you're assuming that as a typical person who supports Man United and does this at the weekend and does that at the, during the week and once on a Friday, once every Friday does this. But the person next to you doesn't do that. Yeah. So we have to ask the young people what is right for them. And it is about a balancing of needs. And we're trying to balance two really important principles. And the first principle is we're trying to establish what is important to somebody yep. and balance that with what is important for somebody. So what might be important to my teenage son would be to spend time playing online with all of his mates as much as humanly possible. What might be important for him would be to get outside, get some fresh air and get a walk. <laughs> it's kind of so a uh, similar thing with my children, I talk about short-term happiness, long-term happiness. Yeah. Short-term happiness is being online and doing all that stuff. Long-term happiness is going for the walk because you're healthier, you'll live longer. You will get it into a routine which will make you live happier. You'll have that time to reflect on that. Yeah, sometimes what you think right now is important has a negative effect long-term. And actually what you should do Ooh, it's that word again. quite so appealing. <laughs> quite so appealing, like dry January. Yeah. So it's important to me <laughs> that I actually have a nice time and feel quiet and calm and relaxed. It's important for me that I'm healthy. Yes. And actually those two things aren't mutually exclusive. So it's around trying to balance the two and making sure that there's time for things that are important to and time for things that are important for and to actually get those in a way that makes sense for a positive future, not a negative one. Again. You can talk about um, what's good for me. So uh, lots of uh, long walks, uh, going to the gym, uh, eating my uh, uh, um, lovely uh, five bean salad for lunch and uh, this blah, blah, blah. That's good for my body. Mm -hmm. 
long-term happiness thing. It's that what's what. But sometimes you want something that's good for your soul. Mm. Chinese takeaway. Not great for the body, but great for the soul. Yeah. But it is. It's always a balance. And you can't have one without the other. But I think we often set up our systems in a way that doesn't allow the balance. And that's why we're talking about it today. So why does it matter that we even think about choice and agency inside a system that, frankly, doesn't offer a lot of it? So why are we bothering to have this conversation? So <laughs> that's a perfectly reasonable question to me. Right. Well, thanks, thanks, thanks for coming today, uh, Sarah Jane. Uh, uh, I'm about week, to tell you why we're bothering to have this conversation, Dale. Don't try and derail me because I'm not going to have it. So one of the th reasons why we have this conversation is that we're in the education business, aren't we? And we are educating young people to grow up into adults. Adults have to make choices. They have to choose. They have greater agency than they had as children. And we can't expect people to suddenly stop being a child and suddenly turn into an adult with the full experience and knowledge and understanding of how to make choices if they've never been asked to do that. And that's far more of an issue for our young people who have special educational needs and disabilities because often we protect them from those. And the more significant their issues, the more significant their challenges, the more often other people step in and tell them what they need and do things for them and don't ask them what it is they want and don't allow for that practice of choice making, of mistake making, of, of exploration to happen. And the thing is, making a choice often requires research and thinking about it. And what I would say with this whole sense of decision-making is I would probably say we have quite a lot of adults <laughs> who struggle with decision-making. Yeah. I'm not talking about dry January yeah. here. No, 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 no. But it is, it, it, there are lots of information. So um, currently there is an uh, alarming number of people who believe uh, Earth is flat. Yes. Um, even though everything in the world points to it, they still struggle with that decision-making process. And we can go to various other things. But so you're just saying the whole agency is going, there's a lot of adults mm -hmm. really struggle with decision-making because they went through life having decisions made for them yeah. and weren't really thinking or aware of the world. And they're now an adult and they're having to make adult decisions. And they're not equipped. Exactly. Exactly. So, this is really important for every child and every person, but it really, where I think we used to hope people would pick it up through osmosis. Good luck with that. making their parents. My parents made me do it. My parents made me research things. It's quite, it was quite painful, but I'm very thankful for it now mm. because I've researched, I look into things, I weigh things up and do all of that. But that osmosis thing didn't actually happen. And we have to, proactively make sure people are being taught these decision-making skills and understand they have choices in their life Absolutely. that they need to make. And the other things that are really reasons why it's really important is that often these areas where you get to choose are the areas where you can experience most joy. When it's something yes. you love, 
you don't get chance to explore and to discover the things that you love if you're always only ever taking the things that other people set out for you. Yeah. So we need more joy in our lives. We need more fun in our lives. We need more excitement in our lives. We need more of the variety and the wonderfulness that life has to offer. And sometimes that's around saying, hmm, I think I fancy trying something else. <laughs> it's kind of, ah, okay. You don't have to have that forever. It's not necessarily a full life choice. It may just be a, okay, so today I'm going to try chili sauce. Fine. I really hate chili sauce. I've just burned my mouth. I've now discovered chili sauce isn't something I like. Great. It's new information. <laughs> yes. That's, that is. It is. But that comes down to the risk-taking part of it. Yeah. Yeah? Because there's confidence in trying chili sauce. And some people... I, I grew up in the lovely London suburb of Croydon. I don't think it's ever just been described as a lovely suburb before, and I can see you laughing. Yeah, that's the first um, for me. <laughs> Everyone's heard of Croydon. I love it when it goes to a Hollywood film as a negative thing. It's just like, yes, it's even in America, everyone knows Croydon. And there are people who I grew up with who basically never left the borough of Croydon unless they were going down to Gatwick to get on a plane to go to Marbella. Okay. And that's literally 30 years of their life would be lived in Croydon on the way to Gatwick, Gatwick, Marbella. That was it, 30 years of their life. They wouldn't take risks. That was their life. But hey, they've got a surprise Marbella. I mean, but, props but to only them. Because their parents took them there, so oh, okay. they went there. It's, it's a very safe world. No, no risk, no challenge. I know what to expect. I know there's a bar. I can watch the football. And if you enjoy it, if you enjoy this, this is not me being negative. I literally look at that and go, I'd get bored. No, I have been. I've had to be to the same holiday in Crete three times. And what I learned about that is it's quite nice going somewhere you've been before. You can really switch off. It's really quite nice. But just to be in those literally two places, Croydon for 50 weeks a year, Marbella for two weeks, and that's it. It's not like, there's the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And we need to teach people to be um, more adventurous and be risk-taking and make choices because you might not be able to go to Marbella. What else can you do? If you're just, you've got to be able to do things. And it's important we help people realize they do have power and they are part of that decision-making process for their future. And I think there's an important piece that's happening at the moment where people don't feel they have a choice. They don't feel that there are options available. It's very easy to have one option presented to you and feel that that's the only option that exists, where actually there's a whole world of options that we aren't necessarily encouraged to explore. Is that because everyone pushed through an education factory where you must conform? I might think that you can, I couldn't possibly comment. Possibly, so, couldn't possibly read your facial expression as I said that. So I think there is a, an issue and I think media and social media and society tend to be very um, monocultured in terms of how they present. We're increasingly being forced into algorithmically de defined channels that feed us the same stuff back again and again and again and breaking out of that thing that they call the echo chamber where all you hear is your own voice and your own yes. visions and things coming back at you again and again that i think is a real issue 
And I think what it does is it breeds divisiveness and it breeds a lack of ability to, to make choices because you don't see alternatives, to research alternatives, as you referred to earlier, to experience making mistakes and experimentation, and to take responsibility for the choices that we make. Yep. There is an awful lot right now of people saying that's the media's fault, that's the government's fault, that's, well, we've even said it on the podcast, that's the education system's fault. Well, actually, you know what? When you get to be a grown-up, you get to actually say, well, whatever happened to me happened to me, now it's my choice. And we can't expect our children to rock up as fully functioning adults without giving them the critical faculties of being able to make choices. Yes. So for me, it is a crucial part of developing into capable, resilient adults is enabling choice making at a very early stage. There's another part that I think feeds into what some of the issues that we're seeing in terms of mental health in children right now is that if we don't offer opportunities for them to share their voice and to be heard early, they're not going to feel seen, they're not going to feel heard and they're not going to be understood. And I just want to touch on that term, they will not feel, they're not heard. Heard, there's two parts of being heard. One is when I say something, Sarah Jane actually hears it. The second part, she acts upon what I said. Hmm. So just because I said this and you go, yeah, it's a great thing. You write it down. But if nothing ever happens, I wasn't heard. Yeah. And we get this wrong all the time. So yeah. yesterday. Just I said it and yeah. I've been given a platform to say something and I've said it and nothing's happened. I wasn't heard. I can think of thousands of examples, which is really <laughs> not, not consoling. And we had a domestic one yesterday where um, – my poor boy, who is now an adult, who had not taken part in the preparation of the food, rocked up to the table to discover that it contained something he doesn't like eating. <laughs> it was kind of, oh, who knew? Well, actually, I knew, but I hadn't bothered sharing that with the person who was cooking, which equally was not me. And because he hadn't shared his view and he hadn't been asked what he wanted, and if he is asked, he says, oh, I don't know anything. Anything doesn't give you a choice. That's not evincing a choice. That's not expressing an interest. If he said anything other than mushrooms, he might have stood a fighting chance of getting a dinner without mushrooms in it. You know, yes. you have to be able to evince a choice in order to receive what you want in but your life. Is, but that is because generally to learn, you learn through failing. Mm. You learn to balance by falling over. Yeah. You learn to not headbutt things by headbutting things and they hurt. You learn to not say, I'll have any, what do you want for dinner? Anything. When for the fifth meal in a row, it's a dinner you don't like. Yeah. You'll learn, but you have to have the opportunity to say something and deal with the consequence. But sometimes this has to be supported. So some yes. people are more able to draw those links. The the action choice consequence link, which is vital, you know, this is these are the options I've had. This is the choice I've made. And this is what happens as a result, not punishment. Yes. This is what happens, a natural consequence. This is what happens, a natural consequence of. Some people need that link drawn for them. So yes. I didn't bother saying what I wanted to have to eat. 
it's turned up late and it's something I don't like. Now I'm hungry and I'm getting, frankly, a bit fractious and cross. You know, some people don't know that that is the way that that works and need that link drawn for them. So when they get angry, fractious and cross, because I get hangry if I'm not fed, <laughs> it, does, it doesn't work well if I'm not fed. I start twitching and my children start looking at me sideways. So, you know, the, if you need to know what those links are, and I would have to say, and we talk in our family, we live life out loud. So we explain what those links are. And I go, I'm getting a bit ranky right now because I haven't eaten anything because you didn't serve food up when I was expecting it because actually it contains something I don't want to eat. And I should have told you what I wanted in the first place. Chaining backwards, explaining it. Many years ago, I think we learned this lesson a lot quicker because <laughs> if you don't like it, don't eat it, but there's nothing else. <laughs> so you, look, you got quite hungry, which made you rumpy. And you, you kind of made sure it didn't happen again. Whereas now as a parent, you're protecting your child. Okay, I can do this. I can do this. I can do a soup. I can do it. It's like, no, no, we should really give them quite a plain meal if they're not. You kind of want to help them with a bit of pain, like headbutting a table, help make that decision. But I am talking those who don't need that support yeah. to be very clear. And kitchens are different places these days. I mean, in, in the bad old days, you know, if you entered the kitchen and you weren't the person who did the cooking, <laughs> you were in trouble. You know, this, yes. this restaurant is closed. It was open for food and now it's done. <laughs> You're not going in there again. There was none of this. I'm going to rock up and help myself to a bowl of cereal because I fancy that or this toast at two o'clock no. in the morning when I finish gaming. None of that stuff. No, no, no. Yeah, no, it is. You, you do need to give, understand that people, all people have a voice. Hmm. And that's also quite hard for us adults to understand. Yes. Because sometimes in a family, the adults have been in charge for quite a while. But now there's four adults. So in theory, it's a two versus two situation. But we're the adults. We're the adult adults here. <laughs> <laughs> it can get a bit fun. And, and that's the thing is I, I, I sit here and watch it as a, as a parent. I sit there and I've given my pupils, my children, their voice. I'm not having to li really listen to it and, when, and go, yeah, you're saying that. And I need to listen to this. Mm. I need to, when you're saying this, I can't just say, oh, no, we're not doing that today. I've said, oh, I said your voice is important. And for me to help you understand your voice is important, I have to listen and I have to act. I can't just say you're important and ignore you. Mm, absolutely. So that's the agency thing. You have to be able to make the difference. It's not just saying the words. It's then allowing a different action to happen. And there are some families, I know that they do this really well, and they have, when their children are even very young, children get to say what they want and they have votes, but adults have two votes. So the child has one vote, the adult has two votes. So even if there are more children than there are adults, the, the children can never outweigh the adults. Okay. <laughs> so because you have a responsibility, you have safety, you have a longer term perspective, and that respects the fact that there are power relationships involved and that yeah. that is not always for a bad reason. You know, that's not no. always a bad thing. So I think one of the things that we need to think about from a school's point of view is that if you actually share voice and people are seen and heard and understood, then what you will see is a reduction in behaviours that you don't want to see. And so I'm going to use a really good example of a daughter voice uh, that worked for me. Obviously, I'm not the daughter in this situation. Um, <laughs> That's a relief. I thought that T-shirt doesn't look like a daughter's T-shirt. 
is I, like on a Friday after school, I'll ask my children, how much homework have you got? They'll tell me, and I'll ask them, when are you going to do it? Okay, and they'll tell me, over Christmas. I said, ask my eldest, how much homework have you got? I've got two pieces. I said, what are they? Uh, one was Spanish, one was art. I said, how big are they? She was, art is this, Spanish is this. I'm like, cool. When are you going to do it? She went, I don't know. I said, right, well, let's not do it in the middle of Christmas. She went, yeah, that's a good point. I'll do art now. I'll do Spanish after New Year's. Mm -hmm. Cool. Are you happy with that? She went, yes. So that was her pupil voice. Yeah, so she's chosen. So I did ask her over the next two, three days, have you done your art? Not yet, not yet. And she got it done because she was part of that decision. Mm -hmm. Then I left her completely alone till the 2nd of January. So, right, you're going to get on with your, your Spanish now. She's like, oh, oh, yeah. And then she did it. But what, what she tells me is my wife will always say, you should do the homework the moment you set it. That way it's not blah, blah, blah. And my wife is one of those children who, who would have done the homework the moment they're right. My, she just told me I leave it till the end because that, that's what I, I need, that motivation. Mm. I need it hanging over me and looming on me to get me motivated to do it. She doesn't rush it. She does a really good job. She's not leaving it to the last, last minute, but she has to get to the point where I've really got to do this. Today. I can't put this mm. off anymore. And then she'll do an amazing job. But that is me using her voice. That's not that's me ignoring what I think she should do. Well done. Mostly. Which is quite hard. I I, well, I never did homework, so uh, that's not the best role model. But I literally <laughs> going, well, yeah, you should do it. It's, everyone says it's the best thing to do it, but actually what works for you? My other daughter often does it. When she gets that homework, I think it's partly a fear thing. She's learned that she gets, finishes all her homework in a lesson. She, get, she doesn't really get to set any because it's finished her homework. And sometimes she'll do it in the break time, the day it's gone, so it's not hanging over her. Mm. And that's it. It's, it's, you can give them voices over little things, but you're teaching them they have control. So the only thing you could do that would even make that even a tiny bit better, so adding on another layer of, of sophistication, would be when daughter one came home with her two pieces of homework, would be to say, this is what you have to do by X. Um, what are your options? What would you like to do? And you said, she said she'd like to do her art first and her Spanish relation. You could, said, you could have offered her an alternative and said, well, you can do that. Or you could do your art on here and your Spanish there, and then you'd have free time afterwards. She could do whichever one. It doesn't matter. But what yeah. you're actually doing is you're offering the capacity of a different choice alongside the one that they've automatically picked. So that means that then they're aware if they choose the first one, that's absolutely fine. It's not a problem. But they had a choice between two things rather than just, oh, God, I've got to say something. What am I going to say now? And then you're actually opening up the option. And either answer is good. I think um, we, I got, I, we used to do that a lot with like Super Nanny gave us that. It's not, um, I want you to wear this. Mm. Yeah. You're wearing it's You find two outfits you're happy with them wearing and you give them the choice. Yeah. 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 Okay, we need to do this, this, and this today. Which one do you want to do first? You're going to get all three done. Yeah. But there's an element of control which tricks them into believing they're part of that. But it, it does. It helps you get through it, and it gives them power, and they do that, and they understand you've got to do stuff. So, yeah, we used to do a lot of that when they were younger. Mm. And going, some things right. are non-negotiable. You know, in life, we yeah. all have to do some things that we don't necessarily want to do. So you need it's to have okay. A 
you need to have a shower today. Cool. Right. So you've got this and this to do. You need to have it before dinner or after dinner. Mm. Before dinner. Cool. Dinner's at six. And you know, you, she's already chosen. So it's half five. It's like, dinner's in half an hour. Have you had your shower? And she'll go, oh, I'll go have it. Because she's chosen. Mm. It's a choice. Makes and it helps her see difference. the consequences of her choice. I've not told her to have a shower before dinner. It really changes where that power sits. And she's already telling herself, I need to have a shower. So, yeah. yeah. I know we're talking about on a parenting, but it is important at every level. And getting down to those pupils who need the support. Yeah, you might sit there and go, oh, he, he can't really answer this. No. You've got to find a way to get their voice. Even with young people who don't use verbal speech, you can use choice boards. Yes. And people are perfectly able to point and say, I want that biscuit or that biscuit. I want this thing or that thing. And that's not a difficult thing to do. And it's used widely. So I think yeah. there are ways of doing it. You don't have to make it over complicated and over time consuming or any of that. But we do actually actively have to teach listening skills, choice making skills, and the ability to be able to plan alternatives because some children won't get that as easily as others. So I think it's really important that we do that for their well-being. And we all know well-being matters now. It's even been included in the whole school and college guidance that the Department for Education and Public Health England have just produced. So, you know, this isn't a, a surprising concept. But when you actually have the capacity to change things, your stress levels drop. There was a wonderful piece of research that was done, I think, way back in the 80s. And it looked at the stress levels of executives in different levels of management. And they looked at them in the civil service. And they discovered that the level that had the highest levels of stress was the middle management level. So the, those who were the leaders were absolutely fine because they get to choose the direction for the whole organization. It was no problem. They felt completely in charge. They were utterly in control. That was fine. The people right at the bottom actually didn't have such a bad time because they were able to just deliver and they felt they had no choice. It was the people in the middle who were trying to manage the conflicting needs of those who couldn't do any more than they could have done in the first place and those who were telling them to go in a different direction. And it's interesting if you transfer that over towards schools, I would anticipate that you probably find a similar sort of thing in terms of stress levels in management throughout the school. But yeah. I would happily cede responsibility for any teachers to tell me otherwise if that's not what they experienced. But that's certainly what they found in the civil service. I'd probably, um, again, it's a political thing, is uh, if you have pupil voice, you should really have teacher voice because if Absolutely. you have teacher voice, they'll buy into it. And if teacher voice is bought into it, then pupil voice will work. But if you've actually got a teacher whose voice isn't being listened to, when they're doing pupil voice, they're probably not listening either. And there's a whole other podcast in that, I probably guess. We'll go to those another time. <laughs> yes. So the other reason that you need to do this is because it's actually a legal requirement. <laughs> I'm just going to sneak that one in for you. <laughs> but that's the thing I said at the beginning. Some people do it just because it's a legal requirement. I, I've, I've, um, my daughter's school, they had a school council. They did nothing. Literally, it was the teacher went along with an idea. We should do this and talked them all into agreeing with it. And then they agreed. <sighs> And things at school, so my, my daughter's on the school council 
her secondary school. And um, it's interesting. They had, it was a anti-bullying week mm. last term and or mental health week even. And uh, they had this thing and they got this presentation and they went, and they were given it by the lead school leaders and they all unanimously went, this is a pile of rubbish. That's a polite version my daughter gave me. Um, we're not doing this. We're not delivering that. And they did their own thing. Because it, it was all so twee. Mm. And it's the sort of thing you can imagine doing in a corporate environment where you're all doing it. But these are teenagers. You're going to lose them. Literally. So they did their own thing and delivered it, giving the same message in a different way. And that, you could really, I could hear my daughter's excitement in doing that. And that's an example of it working so much better. You know, it's just in terms of functionality, if you want to get, if your outcome is to get people to change their behaviours, you involve them in setting how you're going to do that. And if you're not trying yes. to get them to change or you're not trying to get them to consider anything, don't bother wasting your time in the first place. It's going to, don't ask the question if you don't want the answer. <laughs> and again, if you're going to involve them and ask them and ignore them, well, they'll ignore you as well. Mm. So let's yeah, come back for a example. second to legal requirements. And I wanted to just yes. talk about the SEND Code of Practice because it is a legal requirement in the SEND Code of Practice that in every education, health and care plan, there is this section called Part A. Part yep. A is the bit where the parent and child voice is recorded. So yes. it is a legal part of the document. It is required that they are a part of the process. And sometimes it feels like a real bolt-on and totally separate to the rest of the document. And other times there's a golden thread that picks up what's important to the young person that's actually developed through the needs that they have and how that's actually going to be met. And those are the brilliant education, health and care plans where they feed through and you can hear the young person's voice because the parent has actually got them to dictate it and they've just written it up. Or they filmed it and had it transcribed. Or somebody's actually captured it in drawing format. And it just, it brings the whole thing alive. It means that the interventions are actually going to make a difference rather than not. It means it's something that the child thinks is important both to them and for them. And that the parent has brought in to supporting that happening. And we've talked before about how important parental engagement is. If you don't see why you're bothering to do something, you won't be part of it. So it's really important, I think, that we, we build these up. And there's a key principle underneath that, which is around person-centered planning. And there's been some wonderful work done. I think it's Helen Sanders. I'm only going to get it wrong. Sanders and Sanderson, who did some brilliant work around person-centered planning, particularly for people with learning difficulties, disabilities, as they're moving into adulthood. And it's about how to put that picture around the life that they would like to lead and to put those elements of the jigsaw together so that what you're planning makes sense and creates that picture of a future that they want to be part of. And isn't just, I'm going to send them to the day centre because that happens to be down the road and I'm funding this for God knows how long. Yes. I think there's, um, I can't remember if it's offset or something, but I've seen that schools really need to think about where their pupils end up. Mm. So after they've left us, and I suppose this is less important for infant schools and primary schools, but I think it's a lot more important for when they're leaving education. Where are our children going? Mm. What path are we setting on for them? Is that right? Is that going to help them? Is it what they're capable of? 
are we being aspirational? Mm. I I like the fact it's not a case of we're finished. Is actually where are we sending them? What is their future? Mm. I like that. Mm. I think that's spot on. And it starts really, really early. And I love the fact that it can start when you have tiny, tiny children, even in reception or or when you have them very, very early. And we started with things like choosing the socks and the snacks. Would you like to wear these or would you like to wear these? Would you like to eat this or would you like to eat that? And you do it with tiny things first and then you build up and never offer too many options. Yes. So there is a thing about having, if you have more than three options, you've kind of blown it. <laughs> it's, it's too much. And it's too much for most people, <laughs> actually, regardless of age, I would say. Yeah. So I think one of the issues we have in life these days is complexity and trying to keep it simple enough to make it doable, I think is important. So having a limited number of options is good. And you can start with things that are really low risk and then build up so that the amount of risk taking can increase and the consequences can increase because you're trying to build in the capacity for somebody to grow into an adult who can make choices make sensible, rational choices, even if you don't agree with them. Yes, and that, that's one thing, even if you don't agree with them. And um, the thing is, when you're presenting choices as a parent, uh, what would you like for your snack? Would you like a cauliflower, broccoli, or a carrot? You're giving them a vegetable. Yeah. They're not going to have a chocolate. You've decided. And at certain ages, that makes a lot of sense. You are going, these are the options I want you to have, and you choose from them. But there are times where you are going to have to give them options, as you said, you don't agree with. Mm. Yeah, you've actually got to work out, don't give them the options of what you want. You've got to give them options based on them. Because you are talking about their future, not yours. Yeah. So you've got to think about, right, where do you want to go next? And my parents often want them to go to the local school because it's so much easier. But... It seems like what is right for them, what is um, going to be there, and give them options and take them through it. And don't go, well, we could go here, but, and then negatively talk about it, but we could go here because it's amazing because you've got to kind of help them make a decision based on them. And I think you're right. I think school choice is a key time. And I see some parents choosing a school for their children, and I see some parents choosing a school with their children. Yes. And that's a very different thing. And I think there is a real danger that we rock up with our kids and want the school that we would have liked rather than the school that matches the child's needs. And it's about trying to match those two things together. You probably chose a school for your eldest, and then the rest followed. Um, that doesn't work if you have children of different gender and they're single sex schools, but it, yes, that, 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 it that. did. <laughs> so um, for us, we, yeah, we did. Uh, and yeah, yeah, I think, but yes, sometimes you will choose, you don't have options. It's hard to have three children in three different schools. But often you will choose a school with the eldest and the next one will just follow. Yeah, it doesn't always happen, but it's, I mean, one of my dearest friends had three children in three different schools. And that was intentional. That's a lot of of PTA events. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they were working full time. They didn't do PTA events. (laughs) It was just not not something on their list. But I think that that matching is really important. And I think from a very early age, we can teach choice making in terms of play. We can do it in play. You can run high risk in play. 
you can run high risks in creative things. You can run high risks in drama that you can't run in real life. Yeah. And it's such a wonderful way of getting people to experiment and getting them to try on different things. And I think that's lovely. So the next thing I wanted to talk about is who gets to have agency and voice? Well, legally, those are the HCPs. Should be everyone. Yes. And it should be everyone, irrespective of their IQ level, of their background, of how much money they've got, of whether they're verbal or nonverbal, whether they're a wheelchair user or whether they're not, whether they have a visual or hearing impaired, it should not matter. Everyone has the capacity to make choice at some level. Yeah. And they must be given the opportunity to have and exercise that choice for their well-being and for their long-term prospects. And you will often have, if you do pupil voice where you ask each child what they want, or you have like a pupil voice session where it is a big group thing. And I know lots of schools, my daughter's school used to do it. You go, right, we're doing the Romans. What should we do on the Romans? And there's obviously certain things they had to cover, but they also had free range and the children can choose what aspects of the Romans they covered. And it became the children's chose within that topic what they want to do. And I know schools where they've talked about how we want to improve our schools and everyone said their thing. And then I think, I think there was a child in a wheelchair who said, well, I want this. And everyone else went, yes, that's what we want. And that was a beautiful thing. Mm. Because the children changed to actually, that's what we should do. That's important for me because it's important to my friend. It means they're more included. And um, that's really powerful. Mm, absolutely. Because they literally, they've taken, I want this. And they've just got rid of that for something their friends want, which is beautiful. I love that. And I think it's that old common thing about ramps. You know, you may build a ramp for somebody who's a wheelchair user, but you know what? Everyone else can use it. And it's not going to trip them up. And what's the problem? <laughs> it's kind of, yes. it's inclusive by design rather than by yes. accident. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. And there's some really lovely examples of how you can do this, even in infant schools. So one I came across in a school I was a governor of, which was just brilliant, was that they had every Friday afternoon, they had choosing time. Where they had a set number of activities and they may vary. And they had pegs for each child and each child put their peg on the thing that they wanted to do. And there are a number of slots because they didn't have enough for everybody to do everything. And you've got to choose and move around. And that can also be used if you've got a child who's got um, issues with social relationships. So sometimes you may say child A needs to work with two other children. Who would you like to work with today? And they have a choice. And they can pick one person. And when that one person has had their choice and they've had time with it, they need to pick somebody else. So that there then isn't a reliance always on the same individual to be that link person and the only person that they ever work with. But you, so you yeah. can use it as a way of still allowing choice, still allowing development, still allowing learning, but doing it in a way that builds capacity, builds skill and builds development. And another example that was used really well in this um, primary school that I was in was they have a wonderful program called Building Learning Power. And that intentionally builds choice in all the time so that what you're doing is you're, you're consciously building these large skills in small practices. And it's beautiful because children actually respond really well 
to being able to develop in a, a thing where they've had the choice about how they do it. It was just beautiful to watch. So the other thing that I wanted to pick up, I talked about play partners. That was really good. I just wanted to touch on universal design for education because it was something that Jamie and Claire mentioned in their podcasts that I was listening yep. to, which was around if you allow children the capacity to pick the environment that suits them best, they will learn better. Yes. So that could be things like having some standing desks at the back of the room, some sitting desks at the front of the room, some soft cushions in the corner, and people just choose where they are comfortable being and can potentially yep. move. And if you set it up so that it's always there, it's always a choice that they have, and they're managing their own internal state, their own self-regulation, so they're able to learn in a way that would not otherwise be accessible to them. I think a lot of people are scared of trying these things. They see lots of hazards. Well, if I let them do what they want, the three naughty boys will get the desk stand at the back and this will happen, all this. All. But you've got to be brave and try these things. You've got to be brave and try these things. And you again, we talked about that one, is eye contact and how you pay attention and the person's doodling. And that person's playing with a fidget spinner. It's like, right, are they doing the work? Are their test results doing well? Are they being able to retell you what you've told them? Did they have a great story? Did they do all this? Cool. Did it matter they doodled? Did it matter they were watching that dust? Did it matter they were playing with a fidget spinner? What was the outcome? Mm, exactly. I, I, I went on a course with Microsoft for Azure, Microsoft Azure, the cloud platform and all this lot. It was a six-day course. Day three, I was on the uh, social media and I'm looking at cats fire falling over <laughs> oh or God. this or that. And I'm literally scrolling through because I'm bored out of my mind. And, but I knew I kind of would be and I sat at the back not because I'm a naughty boy, but because I didn't want to distract other people. I didn't want other people behind me going, God, what is he doing? I, I chose somewhere where I wouldn't distract other people. Mm. I passed both exams. Mm. Visually, you saw me and go, he's going to fail. He's going to do nothing. I was leaning back on my chair. Yeah, you look at me, but I've learned that if it's not engaging, I'm not going to fully engage. It didn't take my mental, full mental capacity, but I still listened. I didn't disrupt. And, and you'll find a lot of children who they, they, don't, they don't want to disrupt. They want to kind of do their thing, but they're listening. But just because they're not physically giving you all that attention and staring at your marlin because they're the best teacher in the world doesn't mean they're not paying attention, doesn't mean they're not learning. I'm generally someone who will either visualize it, I will put it into context for me. Yeah, so I will be thinking about this on a very different level mm. to what you're talking about because I'm putting it into this in my head. Yeah. Um, apparently I've learned that's not normal, but that's fine. Um, it's quite, I think it's neurodiversity, but that's, that's how I learn. So yeah, I don't look like I'm paying the most attention, but it's going in and I'm thinking about it and it's, it's embedding. And lots of our autistic kids will say, I can either look at you or I can do the work. Which would you like? I can either look at you or I can hear what you're saying. Which do you want? 
Yeah. So it's about allowing choice and allowing difference. And I think that's really important. And I wanted to touch on the mechanisms that we can use to capture pupil voice. So how can, what, what do we have in our toolkit that we could possibly use? And so often these are creative things that will unlock the ability to choose. They're things like art. So you can use art to say, what would your ideal classroom look like? And you can provide sort of um, maps of the classroom and give them sets of things that you might allow. So if you were, for example, going to do a classroom by design and you had three standing desks and two tables and whatever, you know, have a piece of graph paper with cutouts of it and get people to put them where they want them to be and then agree it, you know, kind of, there are ways of doing it that are more lively and engaging than just saying, how do you want this classroom to be? <laughs> it's kind of, you, you really have to get the creativity flowing. So it's art. You have to give them, yeah, so you have to give them time to find it and Absolutely. work out. And, yeah. And, and generally, you have conversations, because this is a part of decision-making, is you might, see, you might have a child to put the standing desks at the front, and you can go, cool, but if everyone's sitting out, oh, oh, yeah, but I, you, you can help them see the issues and talk about, well, okay, have you thought about this? Again, you learn through failing. Mm. So they might do a design. You might have a conversation about it. You might not tell them they're wrong. You might sit there and go, okay, so why do people might? So again, yeah, definitely gives you time and it helps them sort of work out and think through their plans and the final outcomes. And I think one of the things that we often focus on in schools is behaviour. And there's a whole thing about when people are choosing to behave a particular way. And I'm using choosing in air quotes. <laughs> so, yes. um, so often behavior is not a choice. So often it's a reaction to a situation. But one of the things that does happen is that people don't always understand the stages that lead up to that. And yep. exploring those in creative ways can actually help people to draw those links that we were talking about earlier between the stimulus and the outcome and the consequence. So if you were doing that in a dance lesson in PE, you actually could potentially be allowing somebody to experience inside their body what it felt like to be angry or to be upset or to be left out or to be lonely in a way that then enables them to tap into that part of their understanding in a way it wouldn't have been possible before. You're then giving yeah. them a language that they didn't have, albeit a physical language rather than a verbal one or a written one, to express how they feel. If they can't express how they're feeling, they cannot make choices that include those feelings. Yes. So there's dance for those who are that way inclined. Some people, like my poor daughter, as we've mentioned, who's incredibly dyspraxic, dyspraxic would fall over given the dance opportunity. But falling over in dance is an equally valid choice. It's fine. <laughs> it's perfectly okay. She did ballet for years with good toes and naughty toes and good toes and naughty toes. It was really very sweet and looked amazing, but wasn't the most elegant person but she was the one who kind of took a huge curtsy at the front and then looked out at the whole of the audience as if to say and your problem is <laughs> and then go back it was hysterical absolutely delightful such a character but often drama is a brilliant place we talked about drama being really good so yeah. drama gives you the capacity to understand viscerally inside your body what it might feel like to have certain emotions and tying those into choice 
then adds a layer of sophistication, a layer of understanding into the choice making you can have. You can also run through different scenarios and do role play. Role play is a fantastic thing in a drama context. You can have different characters who take different choices and then follow those through and see what happens. And there's some really nice online training now that uses those as scenarios. There was one I saw, and I think it was about, um, oh, it's on sexting. So it was used as a way of exploring what happened to teenagers when they took certain actions. And it was fantastic because it followed through those decision-making processes. So somebody got a, took a picture of somebody else they shouldn't have done in the first place, and what happened when they did different actions. So somebody shared it with a friend and then it went viral. Somebody just sent it back and how it was all used and how people felt and how those scenarios played out. And understanding yeah. those through a creative context, through a drama context, makes them real in a way that standing there and saying, you shouldn't do that, doesn't do. Yes, because I think you read in a book, oh, that's not me. Yeah. You do that, you know, not me. Okay, so let's act out that somebody's done you've just received it. How would you feel? Oh, okay. How would I feel? And then you react and they're going, oh, I would know. You'd be much more angry. But it helps them sort of see mm. and react. It's a really good part of it. And different people respond in different ways. So one of the other things you can do is paired working, which can be a really nice way. So you give two people the same question. How, what would you do? What would you do? And then get them to talk about the decisions they made and why. Yeah. And it's very easy, very simple, very straightforward. You can do it at whatever level of functioning that the individuals are at, whatever age they're at. It can be very simple, but it's simple and it's cheap and it's quick. <laughs> it's kind of we like simple, cheap, and quick. <laughs> That's really yes. good. You can do it in audio. You can do it by just talking to each other. You can do it by recording things, if that makes sense, and making a sound scenario of different choices. You could do it by photo. So doing choices based on photos is brilliant for people who don't use lots of verbal language. They can photo yeah. things that they're fascinated by, and then that tells you what their interests are. And it's been done beautifully in some special schools where they just gave kids cameras and said, and just saw what they paid attention to. We, we used to do that um, when my children were young, and it was um, time to... Um, Write a letter to Santa. Mm -hmm. We used to go down and get two copies of the Argos catalogue. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Cut out the pictures. Yep. Or we used to go to Toys R Us and I'd give my phone to one daughter, my daughter, my wife would give her phone to another daughter, and they'd go around and take photos of all the things they wanted for Christmas. Mm. There was quite a lot of photos, but I wasn't having to ask them. It's, it was their, their journey, their conversation. I literally go, why would you, why would you, why would they? I, I wouldn't have taken you to that. I'd taken a picture of that. Then I'm putting my judgment on it, but. You get it, and they're like, wow, they love it. Mm. Wouldn't, wouldn't have picked that. But, yeah, it was really, really fun. And we gave them a voice yeah. before they could write, before they could even always communicate what they wanted. They had a way of communicating. And it can be done in film as well. There's been some wonderful films released about adults who are nonverbal using film to explain how they feel about things. And that is such a powerful way of getting understanding across to those who are using different communication strategies yep. and taking that seriously. And of course, there are the obvious things like AAC, different augmentative and alternative communication. And I know there's a whole podcast on that. So I would yes. recommend you go off and listen to that one. <clears throat> 
And that's really good because everything starts from communication. You have to have a common way of communicating with somebody in order to help them make those choices and to honor the choices that they're making. Yes. So it all starts from there. And I wanted to give you some examples from secondary schools, because I know some of those feel kind of more primary and we talked infant schoolish. So there are some really nice examples in secondary school, which are around giving people the chance to set up extracurricular activities that they love. So my kids' secondary school, which in some ways was wonderful, in some ways was problematic. But one of the wonderful things they did was my boy who struggled with social said that he wanted to have a tabletop gaming club. He wasn't into chess or Ludo or any of the other things I had in the library. So they said, well, okay, you can do this if you want to do it in the libraries at lunchtime, where there are already staff available. You can bring something in and you can do it. As a result, he set up a tabletop gaming club. He found an entire group of friends who he is still playing with and gaming with seven years later. Wow. And it was then a group that opened up to wider people within the school community. So it wasn't just his little group of slightly unusual people <laughs> all doing similar things. It was also a wider group of people who are of different ages as well and some younger kids. And it was all done very safely. And they at one point had a really rough time in the library because people start, kept messing with their stuff. So they ended up moving it to a sixth form where they had sixth formers doing science experiments and the sixth form was just supervised it because all they needed was a warm body to make sure no one was killing anybody. Yes. <laughs> and it was fine. Excellent. It does. It, it can make a really big difference. And again, it sounds like, right, so he just got a club he wanted. No, because no. it actually meant he was felt valued by he was valued he felt valued by that school mm. yeah i want to do this you let me do it and i bet you if he, he showed anyone around that school he would have given that school this is an amazing school it's done and that's the yeah. thing if you listen people respond and it made such a difference and he then set himself up as running an international gaming group and he's been doing that for some time and had his own discord server that he then run with people all over the world you know so it's not that surprising these days but from where he was of not being able to talk to anybody he is now being identified in those groups as being a leader they all nominate him as a leader which is just wonderful for him as having somebody who's struggled a lot with social over his entire life but a lot of times when you think socially, you literally look at a situation and go, well, I'm not into that. I can't join into that. I'm not in there. But as soon as you find something you love and your passion mm. shines through, you will, you will literally, other people will get inspired by you. They want to join you and they'll respect you. And it is huge. Mm. And it is all about having that something, that common ground, that getting rid of the, because as soon as you, you're in something you love, and that's like Lego therapy. Everyone loves Lego. You put anyone in a box with Lego, in a room with Lego, they're going to start building <laughs> Yeah. And then generally, without anything, you're like, what is that? Or what are you building? And the conversation can't start to flow. And you're not talking to each other. You're talking while you play. And a lot of things, it's about that. You're removing the, rather than two people just looking at each other, going, well, you start, well, you start. You're distracting them with the activity. And then the conversation can grow. The conversation builds. Off they go. Oh, I had a conversation. I talked to them. It went, all right. Oh, I can do this. I'm all right. I'm all right. I can do this. And it just builds that confidence. Absolutely. And it can be life-changing. 
you know, it can be Definitely. really, really lovely. And using someone, the things that people are passionately interested in is the way to go. Yes. Because that just opens up a whole environment and makes it really good. And there are ways of running it that don't take a lot of staff time and staff yeah. attention. So it's about thinking through how you can do those and, in, and what ways you can do them and saying, instead of saying no, say, how can we? And what would it take to rather than no? <laughs> it's kind of like, yes. Or Definitely. maybe we'll try this one for this period and somebody else gets a choice another period. You know, if you can't do everything yeah. for everybody, maybe everybody gets a certain amount of time that they can try something for. And that's really helpful. So the other things that I wanted to touch on was school councils and school parliaments. Yeah. <sighs> so <laughs> I'm breathing heavily because there's a good... They can be there. amazing. Yeah. They can be rubbish. They can be inclusive. They cannot be inclusive. So there are some key principles, I think, that are important to think about. And one is that they shouldn't just be the chosen ones from each group that get to be on school council. Um, it shouldn't automatically be the most popular kid in the class. And it should reflect the school population in its wider context. So it may need some managing and you may need to have splinter groups. So one of the brilliant schools that I went to visit um, has a splinter group of the school council that's just autistic kids. So they have their own group that feeds into the school council and they have a voice on that and they get to elect someone from their group who is a member of the school parliament. They call it the school parliament rather than the school council. And one of the things that they said that was really difficult for them was really um, loud and busy corridors because that was a touch point. That was a really difficult period for them because they kept, it was really busy, it was really loud. People would hit them with bags because they were just going past and the lockers were in the corridors. What they wanted to do, all they did was they moved the lockers somewhere else where they weren't in the corridors and that made it easier. So sometimes the solutions are really simple but that came not as big as you're worrying. Yeah. Yeah. And that could make a world of difference. Because if you're sitting there and you're being hit over the head repeatedly by people's bags as they're pushing past, and you're sensorily very sensitive to it. So if somebody just touches you and you feel that as a hit, that rather than just a, a gentle brushing, that's going to make you feel really unsafe. And a small difference can make the world of difference. So that was an example of something that was really, really, really good. I think you touched on about who should be on the council and my colleague, uh, John, his daughter's just been put on the school council and it's really good because he said it's going to be really good for her because she's got to listen mm. to those in her class and he's talking about how you need to also listen to those children who aren't sharing. And he was talking about how it's a big responsibility. Mm. You share what you think, you listen, but you've also got to kind of make sure everyone's voice is heard. And it, it, yeah, it is sometimes you put the children on the council who are going to benefit from the council. They're not going to be sitting there talking all the time. They've got all the ideas. They might have no ideas yet, but they might have no ideas because no one's allowed them to speak. Mm. And it, it, sometimes it's putting those children on can make a real big difference. Absolutely. So, yeah, and it can be a beautiful thing. 
it can be a really beautiful thing to see somebody actually come out of themselves and be able to talk in that environment when they never thought that they could yeah is really wonderful the other thing i wanted to just touch on is co-production of reasonable adjustments so one of the things that often happens with children who find that they're no longer able to attend school because things have gone wrong, because they've been bullied, because the environment is sensorily overwhelming, because they're just really struggling with mental health issues or other things, is that often you need reasonable adjustments in place to enable them to come back in. A reasonable adjustment from a shopping list that you may or may not have tried before, but isn't the one that's going to make a difference to that child, is not going to do the job. It really isn't, with the best will in the world. So what it takes is to be able to sit down and work out what would make the difference. And often it's very simple. It's just going to the child and saying, what would mean make the difference so that you can? Yep. How could you? What would make it viable for you? How much could you do? And what do you already know that the school can do that you've seen other people do that you think would help you? And time and time again, that is the thing that would enable somebody to get in and to be able to function and be able to make that transition back in. And we need to be able to do that. But that's a co-production thing that has to start supported by an adult who knows what's available and, and a child who knows what they need and for them to be listened to, their problems to be seen, for them to be heard and for them to be understood as to why they're asking for it. And not just to assume that they're trying to be manipulative and, oh, if I say that for them, then everyone's going to want it. Actually, I don't think that really happens. I really don't think that happens. And there's things you can do. So um, I can't remember who I was talking about. Instead, if you've got people who come in, you kind of do like a turn, they're struggling, and they, they want to, might only come into the classroom for, let's say, half an hour or an mm-hmm. hour, and you want them to extend it. Well, what she, I think what she was talking about is rather than doing it coming at the beginning and staying till this time and then staying till a bit longer, where you're trying to push it as far as they where they're struggling at this point, when they see you struggling, you kind of will. I think what she talked about is kind of changing that round. So, um, and there's things you can do. I suppose if you know how long you've got to go for, you can change things down. So come in towards the end of the day, where it's quieter and calmer. And maybe come in an hour before the end, and you know when you're going home. And maybe change that earlier. That way, you know that fixed time's ending. You know where you've got to get to. And it's sometimes things like that changing how people see things, the perception. You might find it easier for them coming in the day. It might make more sense to you coming in and seeing how far we can get. But sometimes these children won't recognise I can't cope with this till it's a bit too late. Hmm. So actually, when they're really, when they're really, you know, you know, they're struggling. It's it should have ended a while ago. So, yeah, changing things around is quite a big thing. Um, ask them what they can cope and maybe not, don't push it. Mm. Don't push, listen. Ask them, how has this gone? How do you think? Do you want to increase? No. Okay. And I think sometimes you need a daily review. I think you're spot on because one of, I was working with a family who they had a child who was struggling to get in. And they had been trying to stay for the whole day. They had been trying and trying and trying to stay in for the whole day. And the child had other complex issues as well and just couldn't manage that capacity. They were completely wiped out. So what we suggested was to give them the option of leaving when they needed to. 
And within a week, they were back to doing full days because they were able to leave at the point at which they had exceeded their capacity. And because of that, they were able to stay for much longer than when they didn't think they could have left. So just giving them the option of leaving meant that they were able to stay rather than having to flare out and having a meltdown and having to leave. Yeah. My, my nephew, they did the, the green, amber, red zone, yeah? Mm-hmm. Are you in the green zone? Yes. Are you in the green zone? Don't know. Which zone are you in? No, which zone are you in? He goes green. What zone are you in? Don't know. That basically means red or orange, but he just doesn't recognize it. Mm. But if he says, I don't know, he's in the red zone mm. or orange zone. But So if he doesn't say green, it's bad. Mm. But he kind of he doesn't realize it, and then the negative bit's happening, it's too late. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's let them lead. And it might be going, right, rather than going, right, week one we'll do an hour, week two we'll do an hour and a half. It's like, what, I've got to go up to that. Rather, let's, let's just start with the first week. We'll come in for a week at an hour. You don't have to tell them the rest of the plan. Mm. Ask them into the week one, how's that gone? Do you want to try for an hour and a half next week or do you stay at an hour? Stay at an hour. Fine. Stay at an hour for another week. Okay, so you've done two weeks now. I think you're ready. You're building their confidence. You're using the positives to push them up rather than I want to get you back in school in four weeks because that is, is better. Take it at their time. Use their voice to feel how they're going and you'll have more success. Absolutely. They'll feel they're in control. That child who could leave when they needed to, you've given them that control and that control has got rid of their worry, made them more comfortable when they can stay. But it's also a learning opportunity. So part of that was around how do I feel when I know I'm not going to be able to cope anymore? And yep. what does that feel like? So on a couple of days, it may have gone wrong. And you say, okay, so today wasn't a great day. What happened? How did it feel? When did that occur? Was there anything that happened before? You know, and it's listening to them about what their experience is to help them to manage themselves because we're trying to teach self-reliance we're trying to teach the capacity to self-regulate we're trying to teach the capacity to make the choices and to make them responsibly and all of that helps when you have the conversation to go with it we can't do it unsupported you know it's not just kind of well, go whenever you want then (laughs) it really isn't that it really is the antithesis of that it's very carefully supported. So let's just talk about what families can do, because we've talked a lot about what schools can do. And for schools, I want to point you to one of the virtual send sessions, which I did, which is on listening to pupils and working with parents to create effective EHCPs and annual reviews. Highly recommend you go and have a look at that. Go and have a listen, yep. rather. Look and listen, because we filmed it. I think we filmed yep. it. She said it was we did. so long ago now. I, hard to remember what happened yesterday. So I want to focus now on what families can do, because I know, dear listener, that you may be a parent too. <laughs> yep. So the first thing is around supporting options. We talked a little bit about offering two options or maybe three, but it's supporting those and doing the research if your young person can't think their way through to that because they may not be able to, they may not be aware that those options exist. One of the other things to think about is that sometimes we have to believe even if we don't know yet that our children will have growing capability. We may not have the evidence for it yet, depending on their profile and their speed of learning, 
the movements, the changes may be very small. They may be tiny steps of progress, but we need to register and reflect and honor even those tiny stages of process and reflect that they will have growing capability. The person they are at two won't be the person that they are at four, who won't be the person that they are at 10, who won't be the person that they are at 18. Yep. And we need to reflect that that is going to change because sometimes when we're in the weeds and we're doing it all daily, 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 we kind of forget that things change. <laughs> yes. And sometimes we have to look back and go, wow, haven't you come such a long way? That's brilliant. Look at what you've done. <laughs> That's amazing. So we kind of need to register that and, and believe that it can continue. Because sometimes when it's in a kind of downward spiral and it's going wrong, going wrong, going wrong, you kind of think, oh, my God, is it ever going to work again? And the answer is probably, yeah, it will. You just need to try a different strategy to kind of I think that. I think if you give three options, you can always give two safe and an aspirational. Yeah, yeah. So I put my, my two stars and a wish type thing. But two, uh, two things, yeah, you know, do either. But actually, it's aspirational. Because what you're going to find is one day they're going to go for that aspirational because you've hit that point where you haven't realized they're pushing forward, they are progressing, they're developing, and you haven't quite noticed that yet. So having that aspirational one, you might go, yeah, I'm ready for that. You'll be going, oh, they've gone for it. Mm. Oh, let's see how it goes. And it might not work, yeah? You can unpick why it didn't work, and then that will help you learn for the next time if we go there how to avoid that. But it helps you by having that two they can cope with and an aspirational. It always gives them a, oh, I could go for that. And it might make them brave trying it. But it also helps you see, oh, actually, they're going for the aspirational one. Perhaps I should make that level safe. And I have another aspiration. It helps you develop those options rather than giving them, do you want, um, do you want, uh, do you want uh, sausage and chips or do you want fish and chips or do you want a curry? <laughs> bland, bland, spicy. One day they'll go. I might try curry. Try it. They hate it, but they tried it, and that's a bit. That's the best part. The fact they chose it to try it. That's a big change. That's a big step. But it is. Yeah. Sometimes it is. Sort of two safe choices and something. Don't think so. But you're kind of helping them go. You can do something else. There are other options. You might in that zone today you literally gone i've done something amazing today i'm going to go for that one i'm going to go for the double whopper with cheese i'm going to go for the big boy i'm going to go for it type of thing <laughs> but other times they won't but yeah i think choice making having an aspirational like when you when you're doing that choice making as a parent um I've got a daughter who gets a bit anxious so what we found is it's quite good to go onto youtube and watch lots of videos hmm. Yeah, going to a theme park. You can watch a video. Someone, someone's always filmed a tour and every single ride in every theme park. So you can already go, oh, I'm not sure about that roller coaster. Let's watch the video. Yeah, I can do that. Right. So her yeah. worry about that roller coaster, she's already seen what it's going to be like. She hasn't had to fizzle it. But we, we've done lots of things like that. We've done lots of things like that. And it just helps reduce. And, um, and then what's also done is we then found other things like that. Mm. So it's helped us go into different places and things like that. So yeah, definitely use things like YouTube to help share information, to help them make choices. And so often, I think the capacity to choose something new and scary depends on what your general capacity is on that day. 
So if you've had a day where you're overwhelmed and overworked and it's all too much, that is not the day to try the spicy curry. That is the no. day to go for your standard sausage and chips, if standard sausage and chips is what you love and like, and it's the safe yes. choice. You know, you've already done yes. the brave stuff out there at school, or you've been and explored or, something brand new. <laughs> it's kind of- or you might have done two brave things. They've been all right. Let's go for a third. Yeah, and you can offer that but, choice, but it's about having yeah. the capacity. So you need to understand when they're flamed out and when yep. there is still something left in the tank. And yes. you can go with the movement, but if you then find that they've done three amazing brave things, don't be surprised if the following day all they want to do is lie in bed. Yes. Because you then have to recover because you've done all those amazing things. And you think, ah! and it's like an elastic band. You know, you pull an elastic band, what's it do? It snaps back into shape again, doesn't it? You kind yeah. of stretch and let go and stretch and let go and stretch and let go. And if you pull too far, the damn thing snaps and it hits you in the knuckles. So yes. you kind of have to do that continual stretching and release to enable the capacity of growth. And then hopefully it will pull the thing forward a little bit so that when it stretches back, it's actually moved from where it was. So you're moving the envelope forwards, but you're still stretching and releasing and stretching and releasing, and it's still moving, but it's within the same sort of amount of movement. Yeah. And I think one of the most important things as parents we can do is learn to step back. This is really hard. It is so Mm -hmm. hard to do. So sometimes you have to allow them to make the flipping mess in the kitchen, to break stuff, to make bad choices, to go out with the wrong people, to, to get on the wrong train and end up going in the wrong direction. <laughs> you know, it's kind yep. of you have to have allow people to have those experiences and those to build up their capacity to understand they can do that thing and the sky doesn't fall in. Yeah. In order for them to be able to function. So there's a wonderful example. My daughter travelled to college on the train for the first few times, and she ended up getting on the train and she'd actually got on a fast train that didn't stop (laughs) she didn't realize she got on the fast train but god bless her she texted the college group chat and her tutor and said i'm on my way to wherever the town was by mistake i won't be in for the beginning of class i'm coming i'll be able to turn around at x and get back (laughs) and because of that she wasn't in trouble because she did exactly the right things you know she got on the wrong train. It wasn't right. She didn't turn up on time, but the world didn't fall on her head. And actually, they all had a good laugh about it afterwards. And that was a really good outcome for knowing that even though she got in the wrong place and she was having a real panic, she was going, oh, what do I do? What do I do? And said, so find out when you can get off the train, get the next train going back in the opposite direction, tell the people you're supposed to be there that you're delayed. Yeah. Because the thing is, when, when children are really young, they learn trial and error, yeah. and it's quite simple. They walk into something, they jump off, they fall over, they try and do that, they hurt. It's quite a nice, simple binary. If it hurts, don't do it. System. <laughs> um, then as, as they get older, it gets more complicated, and we kind of protect them more, and we limit them. And then they get to 18, and they can do anything they want because they're not with us. Mm. And it's a really interesting. You kind of want to sit there and help them all the way through and um it's interesting so when they get to 17 and they can drive they can drive to anywhere in this country they can do anything they want with your car by the way with your car <laughs> so you've kind of got to sit there and my daughter's 15 and she'll be 16 soon and i'm literally going although i really want to protect her 
I need her to be able to protect herself because I'm not going to be here there all the time. Mm. I'm not going to be just down the road and I can pick her up if it starts raining. Mm. She's going to be, she's going to go away somewhere with someone and be somewhere and have to deal with it on her own because I'm three hours away. And you can't just expect it. So you've got to build up to it, which means you've got to let go, which is quite hard. So you've got to be, some of those decisions you've got to do are quite hard. And you kind of got to go, yeah, it's, hopefully it's all work, but it might not. And it's and about having a plan B as well. Yes. If it goes wrong and knowing what you're going to do if it all goes wrong. <laughs> you have to prepare yes. yourself as a parent for what you do if it all goes wrong. And actually, there are lots of things I think that we sometimes don't do that would make life an awful lot easier. So I'm working with quite a few adult clients who have been sheltered by parents and have not practiced the life skills that they need to, to be able to function as independent adults. So I'm sitting here as a mother thinking, God, it's so much easier for me to make the dinner because then I get it on time and I get food I want to eat. And everybody gets something really nutritious because I insist on that versus Actually, my daughter, before she went to university, cooked for us every evening for two years. So I knew that if all else fell apart, she would have the capacity to cook food she could eat. Yes. And that required me to step back and not get into my own kitchen. And that causes me to start twitching slightly. <laughs> it's kind of, these things aren't easy to do, but it's really, really important that we do that. Really, and I'm st- yeah. I'm still learning. And as an adult, my wife wasn't well yesterday. I got told off because I did pasta, but I didn't give. I didn't provide a vegetable to my children. Oh, Dale! We all loved dinner. We had it. We're like, we're like, oh yeah, I need to think about that. But if I don't do it, I don't forget, and don't. Do that. I need to think about it, and I need to talk mm-hmm. to them. But yeah, but yeah, it's bad, Dad. But no, it's fine. They, they, I said they're still alive. What's the bad thing? But it is. It is. You've got to get into these habits, and it's not always habits you get into, but. Your daughter would have broken something as she cooked. Mm. She would have got the recipe wrong as she cooked. Multiple times. She would have done. But that's part of the process, isn't it? Absolutely. It is part of the process. It's making a meal no one eats because <laughs> it's that bad. And for Did somebody with executive functioning issues where it takes her two hours to cook a meal, it takes me 10 minutes. This is a work of practice. It's a labor of love. It takes her forever. And she has to balance now the requirements of feeding herself and doing academic work at a really high level. Yeah. So she has to plan meal prepping. She has to plan making wants and putting extras on one side and putting some in the freezer. And she had flu this term and was really poorly, running a massively high temperature and had to work out how to feed herself on her own independently in her house which was largely but, from takeaways or stuff she's already put in the freezer because she knows how to cook. Because she had a starting point. Yeah. She knew that cooking dinner took two hours. It's not yeah. like it would take me half an hour. Oh, my God, it's taking me two hours. Boom. Yeah. She already knew it would take her two hours, so she was able to plan around it. Yeah. So you've really given her a voice. She then used that decision-making going for It is really powerful. Yeah, it makes all the difference. And even when really poorly, she was able to do that. So that's fantastic. And it gives her the confidence that she can do it. Because she knows 
choice A is this, choice B is yeah. this. That's not good. That's not good. What's choice C? I've got to go for that. Yeah. And it, it just, she's she's got the information to make informed decisions. And she's doing brilliantly. I, so there were questions that we have to ask ourselves that make a difference. So the sorts of questions we would ask when somebody comes to us and say, I don't know how to, because that's often the temptation will be, well, just let me do it. <laughs> kind of, no, don't yeah. do that. It's where could you find out? That's interesting. Who could you ask? If you don't know how to do yeah. something, who could you ask? Oh, there might be a YouTube film. Who do you yes. know who can help? Well, maybe dad knows how to do that. Or maybe I could teach you how to cook something. Or maybe your friend knows how to organize a personal statement that is absolutely rock star. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, who do you know who knows that? And it isn't always us. And it's really useful if it's not you as a parent, if it's somebody else. Because they want yeah. that independence. So you're trying to build that independence for the day where you won't be there. Because please hope it's that way around, not the other way around. <laughs> please. So it's the parent's worst fear when you have a child who has significant needs. What on earth happens to them when I'm not here? Yes. And we have to plan for that early and keep doing it because those skills take lots of practice. If you have a child who struggles, they take lots more practice. So practice it again and again and again. And we have to teach natural consequences, not punitive issues. So if you cook a meal that tastes rubbish, nobody eats it, and you've wasted all the food you had in your fridge, that's a natural consequence. Yep. Don't cook that food again. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you didn't enjoy that? Fine. Don't do that one again. <laughs> Pick something else. Great. Yeah. What are you going to choose next time? <laughs> We're going off to the chippy to get a portion of chips and tomorrow we'll have something else. Great. Excellent. Good planning. So we have to think in two different ways as parents. And this is quite tricky. I think we have to act short term. What can I do today that will make a difference? And we have to think long term. Yeah. So right now, it may be easier for me to get my elbows out and say, oh, for God's sake, I'm going to make this because I'm hungry and I want it now. But I have to act short term in a way that will support their long term choices. It's better for yeah. me to step back, have a large glass of water, tell me I don't feel hungry at all. And two hours is a perfectly reasonable time to take to cook a meal. And I need to wind my neck in because I'm really lucky that anyone's cooking for me at all. Thank you. It's, it's, a, it's a hard thing. It's walking into a child's room, just closing your eyes to what you see. Yeah. Because if they don't see a need to tidy it, they're not going to tidy it. And all you're doing moaning is moaning. When they see a need to tidy it, then they will do it and they will find it and they will learn their way. But if they haven't found a reason to keep their room tidy, because I, I was never a person who did until I had a games console and people came around to my room, mm. or now I've got a reason. Now we hang out in my room, so my room's got to be tidy. Mm. So that was a reason, and it was tidy from then on. Yeah, if people refuse to come and sit in your room because it stinks, then they're not going to come around again. <laughs> to yes. Of, yeah, I think I might tidy up my room because people don't want to come. Hmm. Yes. Okay. So there's certain things, um, dating and various other things, which will make you tidy your room. Hmm. Um, but yeah, you have to have motivation. And there's nothing you, no matter how moaning you can do as a parent about tidying a room, would ever give a child that motivation. No. Moaning doesn't do it. I wish it did. No, if it did, no. we'd have sorted this ages ago. So I just I have wanted... two daughters. Yeah. I have a messy daughter and an OCD daughter. Oh, right. Very okay. different rooms. Polar opposites is quite entertaining. <laughs> so I just wanted to finish on a positive note. 
And I wanted to finish talking about my daughter's education, health and care plan. So we had an education, health and care plan when she was 17 and it finished when she went to university because that's when they automatically stop. They don't cover higher education. The process of gathering her voice throughout that process has evolved. And it was really lovely to note how that happened. So what happened originally for her first education, health and care plan when she was 17, bear in mind, this is a very verbal, very competent, very intelligent young lady. She could not write her element of it. It was too difficult for her to do. We had to do it over five days in 20-minute slots in order to capture what was important for her. And wow. that took a lot of effort. So even somebody who you think, oh, well, you can write all the time. You're incredibly creative. No, the emotional content, the difficulty of saying, this is what I find really hard, was really difficult for her to do. And I think we underestimate how hard it is to be confronted by stuff that you know that you're not good at. So that's where it started. We then obviously had to review that annual review. And we did it with, first of all, her then reviewing the original thing and saying, is there anything you want to change? And she and I would sit down and it took progressively less time to do that process. And she would come to the meeting. She'd sit in the meeting and she would say nothing. And then we got her to college, to a big FE college where she did an access to higher education course, having fallen out of school altogether and not been able to finish her A-levels. She did, turned up to the first one of those and I started the conversation and she finished the conversation. And in the last one before she left, I just sat there and she was able to take her document to talk through what she wanted and to advocate for herself. Is that because when she gave that information, it made a difference? Did it make a difference? So she shared that from the very beginning, yes. it took all the effort, it made a difference. Yes. So she could then see the benefit year on year of sharing more. Absolutely. There was a benefit, there was a reason to share. It makes life easy. If she, was, if she wasn't listened to, she wasn't heard, yeah, isn't the action taken, then there wouldn't have been a benefit and she may not have done it again. But the fact she was heard, the fact action happened, meant she was going to contribute and she was going to contribute more because the more she contributed, mm. the better it was going to be. And it was all about what she wanted to do. So she wanted to go and study English literature. That's her special interest. That's her passion. That's what she absolutely loves. We found a place she wanted to go to. And she, from then on, she was utterly focused in what she needed to do to get there. And she's now advocating for herself. She's now has a disabled students allowance. She's fantastic. Then I don't get involved at all. Wow. She doesn't need that. I'm there if she needs anything. I'm within reach. So I'll go and rescue her if something goes wrong. And I've had to rescue her a couple of times because things have happened that happened to students. But absolutely fine. She asks for help when she needs it. And the fact that she's able to ask for help from the right departments without my intervention, that's the ball game for me. That's what makes the difference. And she's living the life she has chosen to live the way she wants to live it. And I can't be happier than I am of that. And I'm so proud of her for doing that. That's amazing. Because you've mentioned how on quite a few podcasts I've had snippets over the last two years of her story and it's phenomenal because 
where she was at a virtual school, mm. you kind of you kind of written her off from, from the outside of you. You're not sick of wow, so it didn't go well. She'll be out of school as soon as she can. And no, no, no. She went through. Oh, she's at university. It yep. wasn't. Again, it's not that she didn't like learning. It wasn't that she wasn't interested. It was that didn't fit her. She didn't conform. And she was able to do it her way. And she's thriving. Absolutely. And couldn't be happier. And has friends at university, is living in a house, loves the people she's living with, has sorted out who she's living with next year. Fabulous. Couldn't be happier. Marvellous. And we're going to end it there. It's such a good place to finish, isn't it? It is. It is great. It is great. And I think it's great for everyone to hear because sometimes, again, you you think about you're a year one teacher. Mm. You're talking to this child in year one. Where are they going to end up? (laughs) Yeah. You have no idea. So you you mentioned like Dean Beadle. Mm. Yeah. So you can literally think about various people you've met and where they started the challenges they went through. So he had an amazing teacher. Where he is now, I bet they didn't think that is where he'd get to. And if you have no idea who Dean Beadle is, just Google Dean Beadle. Go watch some videos of him. Go listen to him. Go read about him. He just trips to schools. He visited my daughter's school. I've met him. I've had a conversation with you and him at the TSSN show. Amazing, amazing man. But, yeah, you will have no idea where the people are going to end up. And you can't it write people It might look off. dark. You have no idea. You sh- All you can do is say, you're right, you don't fit into the education system. But that's about it. You can write them off in that way. This system doesn't fit you in the way we do it at these schools. But you're not writing them off. You're writing them off in that setting. Mm. That doesn't work for them. When they find something that will work, they, they will thrive. And they will flourish. And they will grow. And it'll be amazing. Which is why it's really important to listen and to give them the choice of what they might want to do. So it's about offering options. You have to offer options, otherwise people don't get the opportunity to make choices. Yes. And this is one thing I've, I've got an idea for another podcast, which I don't know how to do, but it's basically about fixed pathways. Mm. So sometimes you go, oh, oh, so has autism. That's the pathway. <laughs> that one doesn't exist. <laughs> But there are lots of um, local authorities who have these pathways. Mm. And it just it needs to change. I get the idea, but the pathway should be a starting point, not the only option. But yes, there's lots of systems which have these pathways and you get put on a pathway and that's decides the next five years of your support. It's like, okay, that's uh, interesting, but that's a whole other podcast. So thank <laughs> you for coming on the show today, Sarah Jane. It's another long one. Um, um, slightly over our 45, 50 minute hour. Tiny bit. Tiny, tiny bit. Um, you've given me some links. So, um, so I'll share those with everyone. You'll find those in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed already, please do subscribe. You can subscribe across all the different podcast platforms by going to our website, www.thesendcast.com. You can follow us on the social medias on Twitter. We're at the Sendcast on Facebook, the Sendcast and on Instagram, the Sendcast. And if you listen to us through iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please leave a review. Let others know what you think. Give us those five stars. And before we go, I would like to remind you to check out the Training for Education website and the Virtual Send conferences. 
great way of getting CPD for, to all staff, not just the Senko. Let's empower everyone. Let's not just leave it all to the Senko. The more people who know, the better. So it's a website, it's online CPD, it's one price for the entire school. So a conference is £60 for 12 sessions. And Sarah Jane's recorded some sessions for us. So, and she's mentioned that, and there'll be a link to her session in the show notes. Um, but it's a really good way of getting CPD for current staff and future staff. So you can find out more by going to www.trainingforeducation.com. And as an exclusive gift to Sencast listeners, you can get 10% discount on the conferences, future or past, by using the code SENDCAST10. So thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Sencast. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye, everyone. Enjoy your time.